Man, I've got to say, despite today's topic, I am fucking ebullient. And not just because of the election in and of itself. <laughs> I mean, preferred result, and if it's not your preferred result, then I'm really happy that you're unhappy. I want you to be less happy in this area of your life I and hope you have areas. a terrible evening. I could extend that to the week, month, year. Four of them, maybe. Possibly even eight. I could extend that to a lifetime, but I like to leave room for redemption. After four years of really just your emotional and spiritual shins getting kicked every day. I I understand what it feels like to be trigging the libs or whatever the fuck they call it. Because it's like a fucking drug. It's just really nice. Going through fucking photos of people with confederate flags sobbing. And you know, I just hold out hope in my heart of hearts. That given the outgoing president's personality type, and I know it's he leans towards denial and denies where he's going, but there's a chance he just kills himself. He just, he just fucking kills himself. Just fucking does it. And I will be walking on sunshine. There'll be a picture of me in a history textbook, just two thumbs up. <laughs> I'll have a smile that does not seem like proportions work on a natural physical human. I would love to um see what the game makers have to say about, you know, the chances that he fucking isekais himself on the way out. It's it has to be a non-zero chance, right? Yeah, it's one of those long belts where maybe you could win the pot. Mm. Or maybe you could be one of these idiots on poll that bet half of their life savings that people really wanted to make America great again. <laughs> and then I feel lose fucking half your life fantastic. Savings. Oh man, I it's been wild. Like I was, uh, I was taking a walk with Morgan, and we were just discussing. This is weird. I haven't had an intrusive thought in like two days. <laughs> what do I do with myself? There's all this mental real estate that's now just empty. Yeah, you might. I don't. You could write poetry now. I guess. I think I might write poetry. I maybe I'll read Akewood finally. That's one thing I'm. I'm thinking I'm going to read the less good Dune books. <laughs> I'm still uh, I'm still working my way through the first one. It's a little uh, a little dense, a little little heavy on the proper nouns, but it is pretty cool. Ah uh, yes, the Shmararak walked down the path of the Christ Hamid, seizing his double knife into the unvoid. It was the fault of the Jamaric Vangors. Of the ah fuck, I can't do it. It's fine. It's my fine. Nonsense is an art. I'm such a fucking terrible improv artist. I have to tell you, but um. If I'm given time to prep, as I was for this episode, then oh man. Oh yeah, 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 Sam's loaded up with silver bullets today, which is good because I went to fucking pre-cure Helen back, and I'm pretty sure I have some psychological after effects. I didn't even try today, I think I'm wearing some kind of reddish pink. It just, it leaves its mark on you, it's like lycanthropy. I'm thinking that you have to keep your door closed and put a towel under the door because you sparkle at night and it'd keep up the rest of the apartment. I keep finding these footprints. They're in the just these mud tracked footprints in and out of my apartment, going into the last open toy store in Brooklyn. <laughs> and I'm starting to find dolls, Sam. I'm finding dolls scattered it's throughout all my over home. The fucking house. And the labels say they're different characters. They're supposed to be different characters, but I swear to God, I couldn't tell the fucking difference with a gun to my head. <laughs> They're all so fucking pink, and they're all so fucking squeaky. How am I supposed to be able to tell the fucking difference? I went on the TV Tropes page after I watched that, by the way. And I think, I'm not sure, it seems to have a really strong community. 
like just a horde of man children and actual children. And what's crazy about it is I was reading the concept and it seems that the the new series that I watched doesn't do the thing that it's known for. Like the the gimmick is supposed to be that they have to transform together and they can't do it by themselves or some shit. And then they have to, you know, fucking tag team plotline try to get along kind of shit. But uh that's that's just not the case in this series. I oh, know she they, people transform on their own all the time and I'm left there wondering, Jesus Christ, did I watch a bad pre-cure? Maybe this is like somewhat analogous to the Pokemon games getting away from random encounters and instead of a champ fucking runs up to you in the <laughs> wild to push your shit in. That's very possible. That's very possible. Getting my shit pushed in by Machamp, that's how I felt in the aftermath of the Legend of Korra entry in the Avatar franchise. Uh, yeah, this one's been a long time coming, and this is not the only episode that we're going to do about oh, yeah, this it. This is going to be split into, I don't know, somewhere between two and four parts. It, it it's depends when the wind four. blows. It's going to be four. Okay, Sam has four episodes of thoughts on the Legend of Korra. Hachi fucking Machi. I guess I'm just going to dial over to pure punch-up mode. No, it, it, it's going to... See, what's going to happen is Sam's going to say a bunch of facts, and then I'm going to just shout the word butts at the end, and <laughs> that'll be the format of Weeboo Hell for a bit. Before I begin, just one or two things. I have certain, I guess you could call it baggage, tied up with this show. I think, you know, I'm not going to pretend that a whole bunch of my problems with this didn't have something to do with the fact that it is the sequel to the most sacred of sacred cows in Western animation, right? And, you know, just one of my favorite pieces of media in general, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. So, so yes, for the armchair shrinks among you, those are part of the mental stakes behind this. I think you could very well contend, or very easily contend, that the fact that there is an ancestor that matters makes this show's failures matter more. Yeah, I mean, context is always important. But I do want to be able to judge this show on its own terms as well. You start being in danger of begging the question every now and again. When really? You've got this, uh, when well, you... what's wrong with begging the question? All right, so i got to define begging the question right now. <laughs> um, uh, because no one knows what it actually means. <laughs> begging the question is when something is used as um, a reason for itself. It's not inviting the question or inviting an obvious question, as is uh, what it's usually confused for. Begging the question is, you know, person A is an honest person and i believe what honest people tell me so when they say that they are an honest person i believe them because honest people tell the truth and i believe what they tell me right oh so it gets crossed up with a different fallacy a lot yeah yeah so it's like it's um it's kind of like a circular logic sort of thing that is what begging the question actually means so i don't want to start getting into you know Korra is uh bad because it is not Avatar The Last Airbender, and Avatar The Last Airbender is good, therefore, because Korra is this, you know, removed from Avatar The Last Airbender, it is not good, right? Right. I'm trying to not do that. There are other things. There's plenty of other things, but I'm going to try and not... If I could steal three minutes from your thesis statement, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my only boring asshole thing. Okay. Only because we're doing four episodes on this. Yes. It's just some basic ground for... People that love the dulcet tones of your voice and don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Lay the ground. All right. Cycle back to my childhood. Maybe your childhood. I don't know how fucking old you are. Point is, there was a show called Avatar The Last Airbender, which is a 
in the simplest terms, a sort of A to B epic fantasy story with a martial arts aesthetic slash choreography and a fantasy setting in which four classical elements, people can punch each other with them. It is very fondly remembered. There are overall themes of balance, nonviolence, reconciling the past, etc. Mm-hmm. And once again, widely beloved, including us, we have a show called Weeaboo Hell, so you can sort of tell where our fucking investment in this lies. This is one of the sort of shows that is frequently cited when one refers to anime as sort of more of a general movement than a specific geopolitical fucking product or what have you. Yeah, I would, I would definitely classify Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra as anime. Hence the fucking topic of this in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, that's Avatar, right? Also, Falls a Kid Named Aang. Not that important for our purposes. No. So then here's the sequel show announced called The Legend of Korra. Okay, this slots relatively naturally into the concept. The idea is this guy's reincarnated over time, so he might be reincarnated into this new character who is this uh, water tribe. There are four classical elements. There's a water tribe, fire, nation, Earth air, Kingdom, commune. Air nomads, yeah. <laughs> but the point is, this was this, again, hotly anticipated because of the sort of legacy this first thing I just established. It tends to inspire a sort of Star Wars, Star Trekish type of uh, devotee. Yes. Which I guess is to its credit as just an epic fantasy sweep or whatever. And The Legend of Korra is enjoyed in some camps and in many other camps that I live in. <laughs> it is less so. I don't want to use the word reviled. Uh, revile actually feels a little bit too strong a word. But, um, I also think that reviled implies far fewer flame wars than our present. Yeah, I... <laughs> Man... I think if I had to describe my attitude towards The Legend of Korra, it's more um, extremely disappointed rather than, you know, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Because Korra is a show that is not bad in the way that a lot of stuff we watch on this is bad. Um, my issue with it is and always has been that it makes promises um, and then it never ends up delivering on those promises. Now, a lot of this has to do with Avatar and what an impossibly tough act to follow it was. Like, Reich, um, the creators of Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, for those who didn't know, uh, they, they really had their fucking work cut out for them. Um, and were Korra to exist in a vacuum, I bet I'd be just a little bit less hard on a few of the aspects um, that I have such problems with as it stands. Like, the individual parts are usually good in uh, in Legend of Korra. Like, the gags are, on average, pretty solid. Uh, the music is spectacular. It's interesting that I could never really call this a total 360 failure the way that I kick into some bad shows. No, no, no. This isn't a prequel talk about trilogy. the music, by the way, if I were to just call out one standout element that just yeah, the never music... lays me down, I never find my son doing blow in the kitchen when it comes to the music in uh, Legend of Korra, which is by... I don't know if it's one guy or two guys, but the unit call themselves the track team. The track team. Same guys as last time, or same guys who did the uh, music for the original series, and it's just better. The music for Legend of Korra is just across the board better than it was for um, for Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, it's on a unique talent in a lot of the tracks. There's this jazz martial arts strings. It's cool, right? No, it, it does not sound like a whole lot of other things. Um, and it gives this series this really cool musical identity that is very... um. It's very impossible to mistake. Mm. I remember I had a joke when we were actually watching this thing live. Um, they were in the middle of this action sequence that I just could not care about for the life of me. And I just pointed out, like, man, it sounds like something awesome is happening right now. <laughs> Check out this fucking woodwind section. The animation, uh, at least in the first se- season, which 
is what we are covering tonight. Um, there's just too fucking much to talk about. Oh, um, yeah, we're just the doing show. the 12 or 13 episodes that... Uh, just the first season, or first book, if you, uh, if you prefer. Um, the animation was really great in the first uh, in the first season. Uh, the production design like, ruled. I absolutely fucking love the look of this show, top to bottom. Like they never fuck up there. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, for it, those of you uh, just joining the franchise, here we're going from. Uh, I don't know what cent- what century would you would you pin, would pin the original series at? The, the original series seemed to take place some. I don't know, like. Anywhere from the 16th Old century. Old times. To, ancient, yeah, it yeah. was just you know older times. There's no guns. And here we are just sort of thrown into this 1920s-esque thing. Yeah. Like we, you basically get everything except gunpowder for karate reasons. Mm, no. Yeah, there's uh, no guns in the show. But I, I respect that choice. Yeah, I, I wanted to shout out in particular because I'm not going to be easy on this, on this series. So I'd like to get out of the way just... A few things that I really do like about it. Uh, I wanted to shout out the fantastic character designs and how they kind of evolve over the course of the series. Like in visual media, one of my favorite things that um to see is when character designs uh, change over the course of the series, um as it means reflecting the uh, the characters and their arcs. Uh, like Avatar was great about this, and Korra is I don't think any less so. Like one thing I especially like is that the um the art style of Korra looks like a slightly more grown up version of Avatar's art style. Like everyone's proportions are just a little bit less exaggerated, and it does like this great job of telling you that this will be the same world as before, but the problems the protagonists uh, deal with are going to be more complex than before. That's true. That's true. Yeah, the character designs do a lot of nice work, and I mean, obviously, they, they achieve just the base goal of character designs of making little endorphins go off in your brain, mm-hmm. but they also just carry the character information that they're meant to. Everyone just also looks very interesting too. You want characters to have like strong silhouettes and they absolutely fucking do. If you take Korra and turn her into a silhouette, just take all color shape or anything besides just, you know, her outline away, like anyone would be able to recognize her. Uh, same uh, yeah, with the yeah, rest of the main mu- cast. Muscular cave woman comes across relatively mm-hmm. quickly. It's it's nice. It's nice. Um, it's the same with most of the rest of the main cast. Um, for the most part. Something else I will point at just because of my particular branches of nerdery and oh, Sam mentioned character design, so now it's time for Denard to talk about violence. <laughs> but even at the nadir of this show, except for the kaiju thing. That was fucking stupid, yeah. The choreo will always have at least interesting maneuvers. It will always be relatively taut. Like, the way people hit each other It's always going to look cool, You will hit a threshold in this show where why they're doing it and what happens afterwards doesn't fucking matter anymore. Yeah, it's not always that they're telling a great story with the the action, with the fight scenes, this. But they always look real good. At the show's very worst, you'll be watching an interesting round of Blaz Blue before <laughs> someone says something fucking stupid. Uh, and they do, like, just mountingly so, they do. <laughs> so that kick in the head. I ended up, by the end of this series, right, I ended up so fucking frustrated with the characters and what had been done to them over the course of the show, right? Mm-hmm. With one notable exception, I absolutely love the character of Tenzin, who is, you know... Aang's now middle-aged son, right? 
Out of the better characters, he is one of the only ones that is not randomly assassinated. Yes. Which yeah. is funny because someone tries to assassinate him later. But <laughs> like, literally tried to fucking sense. murder. Like, I know. No, there's this fucking... I, I've been calling it the fucking mobile character assassination squad. <laughs> which fucking rolls up our... Pretty early on in uh, season two, and, and I feel like they never really did wrong by by Tenzin. Like I love that he's basically the opposite of Aang. Uh, that he's aware of this uh, and that it infuriates him, and he gets mad whenever someone brings it up. I resonate with how weighed down he is, you know, by his responsibilities. Mm. Um, like I get that a whole fucking ton. Like how he's uh, has, he's not above being envious of his own children at times. Yeah, he does not get those of uh, ten carefree years that Aang rode through. No, no, it's just always been like <laughs> he grew up with the weight of the fucking world on his shoulders, and it's just still fucking there. Uh, and I also like how he strokes his beard a bunch. I do that. In book three, right? We're going to keep it mostly contained talking about book one today. But in, in, in book three, he has this one fight, which I rate as the best fight in the entire show. And honestly, it's in the top three for the entire franchise. Like, is Oh, uh, the, the Last Stand? The Last Stand. Like, the depths to I, which I, this... I would, I would rave about it, but if we're doing three more of these fuckers i need to say yeah, my yeah, talking we'll... points like precious bullets so <laughs> we'll get we'll get there when we get there um I, I i would call it like a contender for the top three in the franchise the last agni kai still wins it is a mm. sacred cow for a reason premise of the first season just so that we can get this out of the way is that Korra needs to come to republic, republic city, city which is this you know kind of shanghai new york you know, like 20s Shang, Metropolis. York, by Chicago. Chicago. So, like, something like that. Um, So that she can study airbending. She has one more element left to master. That is the uh, that is the last one. And it's uh, it's not coming too easy to her. Uh, meanwhile, she, she discovers this conspiracy uh, by this group called the Equalists, who are a whole bunch of non-benders who... Um, wish to um, are dubiously oppressed by their society we'll get there we'll get there we'll okay. get there <laughs> i've got something for this trust me who are fighting for social equality uh for non-benders uh right in a world um you know where like bending is this big fucking deal um their 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 whole position is that like non-benders have gotten the short end of the stick uh, and they and- are led by the mysterious and enigmatic masked man Amon. Who's got the coolest fucking character design. He has a mask that, with different choices, could have printed them money for a while. Uh, Yeah, they didn't make those choices. Anyway, he has the mysterious ability to, in a manner akin to Aang at the end of the original series, permanently remove someone's bending. What does this mean, dear readers? That's an interesting open question, isn't it? You could almost call it a mystery box <sighs> boy you sure want to know what's in the mystery box don't you yes that's um Amon is interesting only for so long as the promises that are made about him have not been broken yet right but that happens later on in the um in the season we're gonna get there we're gonna talk about relationship stuff now <laughs> because that uh, starts up pretty fucking early so shipping I don't know, the inmates are running the asylum in terms of the balance of time that shipping takes up in the show. Maybe I could just live with that as a shift in focus if it were handled as if deftly we done, as done things well. that used to take up time. Yeah. You know, when when we were rewatching this, right, the first bit of uh, was uh, 
when there's that first bit of, you know, sort of like flirty dialogue on Bolin's part. And I'm like, oh, right, this shit again. It's not the most elegant. I'm not going to bemoan the show's choice to have relationship drama uh, and have it be a bigger part uh, of of it than it was in Avatar, as I do not necessarily believe that doing so was at odds with what the show was trying to do. Um, the problem, I think, is uh, I mean, how... it's a human thing, and they they were, I think, committed to the idea of having some of the characters' concerns be more teenaged, both into things that they... Yeah. Both into less important and more important things that they worry about. I, I think the problem for me was um, how the r- romantic subplots were all positioned relative to the rest of the series' actions. Like, in season one, too much time is dedicated to the fucking love triangle... I want um, you to fucking imagine. I want you to imagine that the plane has just hit the tower. God. <laughs> and the fucking head of the CIA bats his eyes at FBI coon and says, Hey, are you up to anything later? It always while feels like it's... Well, George Bush Jr. just drops the flowers he was holding for CIA coon. <laughs> It's uh, in case you wonder what it's like in my brain, by the way, it's a lot of shit like that. But yeah, well, I I feel like the um the relationship drama always um seems like more of a priority for both writer and character alike, uh more so than it should have been. Um, and I don't know, maybe if they um had reordered or revisited just a couple of the scenes, like maybe what it might have worked better. Like maybe this was a um this was a fucking pacing thing. I don't know. I mean, like, a I think- lot of the relationship issues in the show are just anchored to the fact that Asami is a key like linchpin or waifu option or whatever the fuck you want to call them of their relationship diagram but she only really exists for the relationship diagram in a sort of plot driven action adventure thing and you're just constantly have thrust in your mind why is this human being here why are they here in this scene and when I say that they don't have a purpose and a sequence. I don't mean in like a Lois Lane kind of way, because she's not going to be their like fist fighting parasite either. But constantly present in plot threads where they add nothing, including wit or charm. I'm a little cautious going after Asami because she has some fucking fans. Uh, but she's just so fucking. Everything we make fun of as fucking. Fans. She's so fucking boring. Is the problem like she's a mobile plot point with a power fist? Her personality is this cipher for whatever they need her to like be, do, or feel um in a given scene. Uh, and the most I can say about her that's not a comment on her circumstances is that she's kind of sweet and she doesn't appreciate people betraying her trust. Uh, and that's just. Not enough, because you can say that about pretty much anyone who isn't an out-and-out dickhead. Throughout the first season, at least, she's defined by her circumstances and not her personality. Like, she's rich, she's involved with Mako, her dad is an equalist. I think this carries through to at least season two, if not further. Um, Not not necessarily those circumstances, but just her circumstances. Oh, there's a lot of her and her dad in season four, isn't there? We'll get there. We'll get there. Like, you can make the argument that she's an everyman or something, but I never got the sense that we were meant to identify with her. She's just there. She was there to be the non-bender on the team. Uh, just she's there, there are all sorts of roles or spots on the roster that needed to be filled, and they kind of just came up with a character to do that, and that is Asami. And I just... On a scale of 1 to 10, she sure exists. She tastes very much like bread 
Um, toasts, perhaps. I don't know, man. Bread can have all these redolent flavors mm. caked into them or seeds, various mixtures of, of yeast. There is no interesting crunchy shell around Asami. There is simply content. Grist for the content mill. The- that's a, it's 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 the worst fucking thing that I could say about a character is that they inspire fucking nothing. I don't even hate Asami. I there, there there's nothing there for me to fucking hate. Like usually, if in in an otherwise good series, there is a character that I really fucking dislike or that I used to like, and you know suddenly I do not like them anymore. That tends to be a um an issue of like there's some there's some idea that I just fundamentally disagree with about, you know, what they're doing with that character. And, um, that happens with Mako, but, um, I keep saying we'll get to that and we will. Uh, but with, with We're going Asami, on a tour of the islands only like getting throttled by Jeff Cobb or some shit with, with, with Asami. She just, I don't know. She just sort of, Whenever they need a fucking C-plot, right? And I know that doesn't really sound like a high-stakes bad character. And maybe in a in a sense it isn't, but the thing is that the romance is such a, a bigger gear in this show. That's the thing, It yeah. is as if they decide to change the action-comedy ratio to, like, Rush Hour. <laughs> then suddenly Bolin's terribleness would become more important because he's, like, the comic heavy. And every bad line he spews, I'll suddenly hate more because suddenly it's just a constant runner of... Poor people. fucking Bolin. Like oh, I, they tried. I, I found him. They tried harder than with Asami. He was way more irritating than I remember him being. I, I think a whole lot of my fucking, um, maybe perhaps tainted memories of him and his character come from just where I know his character arc is going, and just the bad and awful places that they take his character arc throughout every, basically every I season think except that three. May be at work because in this first season he is merely he's like grading in a tish kind of way. Yeah, like he, he he's 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 not really dragging down our narrative. He's fine. He doesn't add a whole bunch. Like I find that you know um except getting cucked. like Kor- Korra, Mako, and Tenzin, right? Are you know I I, I felt the three more in, uh, the most interesting players in season one. Um, so true. And Bolin, you know, he's like along for the ride. I, uh, but his gags right are all basically just soccer gags, right? They 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 are played. Like the Sokka gags from Avatar The Last Airbender. Um, but for whatever reason, they are so infinitely less charming. I think there are a few things that could be uh, kicking the charm in the kneecaps. I think that this in part has to do with the fact that they had the inimitable uh, Jack DeSena in Avatar The Last Airbender. And PJ Byrne is just... This isn't a knock against him, but he's just not the same talent that DeSena was. And Sokka... I mean, PJ Byrne is on a similar level if you just ignore things like, you know... Intonation of voice, the material given, timing, causing endorphins to be fired off in my brain. I don't want to be unfair to him because I think he he does a good job with what he's given. It's just that they're trying to make lightning strike twice a little bit and they shouldn't be. That's the thing. They also just have way less of uh, an idea of what they're doing with him in a narrative sense, like a character point A to point B kind of sense. Like, yeah. I don't know, book one, Avatar is essentially Sokka discovering the world outside of his backyard. He well, I like that, do, yeah. yeah. Which is good, yeah. And, he, and, like, and they do it really early so- on. They give him this, like, this short but important character arc in those first two episodes. And yeah, they-, they gave him like these little islands. Like, There's one episode where he basically has to get over his thing of pointing, at, pointing and shouting the word witch. <laughs> they have the, uh, supr- 
way better than I remembered it. Like sexism, Aesop episode. Like he he's just the whole world is sort of coming at him at once, and that had a role. And that honestly, it was a easy position for someone to be a comic heavy without being a moron. Which is just he was a little sheltered and did not think of himself as such. Well, what I liked about him is that he, he and, was very much probably the smartest person on that team. Yeah. Right? And and, and, and thus him kind of being a goofy dude, provide, like a fun contrast is provided there. Um, Bolin, on the other hand, is a fucking moron, as we will learn. Bolin is breathing with intense effort. And we should all be proud. Uh uh, just every manual breath. Again and again and again in this fucking series, Bolin just... He just fails to do the smart thing every single fucking time. The smartest thing that Bolin does is photosynthesis. <laughs> the man who has made himself like a plant. <laughs> I think that was Sartre. He was the one who was talking about like plant people, rock people, and niter people. You know, I'm not. That, I'm not sure. I'm not that familiar with Sartre. There you are, right? I, I watched Precure yesterday instead. <laughs> oh right, yeah. <laughs> Weeaboo hell, not literature hell. <laughs> uh, do we want to talk about pro bending? The pro bending thing is. It feels like a cheat shot. It feels like fucking low hanging fruit. Is what it's it does. a. It's a weird discussion point because I feel like it gets conflated with other things wrong with the show. I feel like the rudderlessness of a lot of the relationship just gets pinned on the pro-bending stuff existing. The pro-bending thing is a... It's, I don't know, it's a fine frame for various stunts. They maybe could have done a better job of either making sure you knew the rules going in to be invested in these matches or what have you. But that's... I don't think that's a flaw in the pro-bending concept. I don't know. It, it is paced out worthy, but there's if there are overall pacing problems... I guess what I'm saying is that as a critic, I sometimes feel wary of ever saying you should not have had this element or narrative goal entirely. Like, it's about the execution, and I think there's a version of the universe where there's an interesting story about Jesus playing basketball. Well, here's 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 my issue. I'm kind of gonna... Arc- it's... <laughs> I guess because I've watched so much fucking wrestling, I think you can just weave narratives into sports stories to any cracked-out extent, and... I don't know, maybe there could have just been more social ramifications of their wins and losses. Like, what if the team they're fighting, like, in their off-time publicly backs harsh crackdowns against equalists? They're doing a fucking mm-hmm. reverse Muhammad Ali thing. Well, the issue um, the issue is that the way that the series is written, right? Um, the issue is that the emotional stakes of pro-bending are just so, so much less than uh, literally everything else going on in this series. Oh, and yes, um, pro-bending does suffer when I said about the 9-11 thing where like, after... The second plane hits the second tower. There is a long pause. And then the secretary of the interior dribbles once, dribbles tries and throws a jumper. <laughs> <laughs> like it ties into a couple of character arts, right? And it like it, it's how, you know, Mako and Bolin are introduced to um to the series, and you know, like there there's a reason that they're, you know, into it. It's like they're taken out of whatever the hell. Um but I like the whole little Oliver Twist side story. Lordy me. I feel like they could have found something else to do the job that had anything to do with where the season was going because it just doesn't. Like, at best, you could argue that pro-bending is like this bread and circuses type deal that keeps people from focusing on the real problems with society. But, like, what real problems? That doesn't even work because their real problem is people resenting fucking vendors. 
It would be like if we had a sport that consisted of people throwing fucking money at each other. I'm trying to. I'm trying to fucking get into. Other it. than behind the scenes football. I'm trying to get. I'm. I'm putting on my devil's advocate hat right here. Right. I'm trying to think of like yes, the I argument guess. that you could make in favor, right, of pro bending. You know what kind of metaphor they were trying for. What you know point they were trying to make, and it. It could be seen as this sort of you know, almost kind of. Uh, celebration of bender supremacy or something like that although it's never treated like that in the narrative sort of do at one point when they 9-11 the fucking super bowl of pro bending they do have that little rant these are supposed to represent the greatest benders of your city but they are corrupt and rabble 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 rabble, rabble, rabble. yeah that Uh, does happen i don't know it's a fucking sports um when i break it down like i look at individual episodes trying to apply it Mm mm-hmm where it survives the best is just its initial usage with the airbending plot. Yeah, yeah, and that like that first little episode right there. I, and I, I, I guess remember, it was, I liked that episode a whole lot. It was well done there. It was, it was caked in in a very natural, straightforward way, and I think that works. Maybe if you had taken the highlight or the point of the five or so pro-bending like, episodes or little mini-arcs. There were so fucking many of them. And it condensed them to just three strong points where the other two are as strong as at first, oh, she's learning to do the airbending motion thing. The element would survive better. It suffers from being dragged out, and it suffers from being associated with a whole lot of other stuff. For example, the relationship drama gets caked into their pro-bending results. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering how much of... um, Is it pod racing bad? I feel like it's not necessarily pod racing bad, but it's very difficult to dodge the association. It is less arbitrary than pod racing. It I will seems give a it little that. bit less arbitrary than pod racing. It is, a, it is way more tied into what's going on and where people go as people than the pod racing-ish. Now, if pod racing was a three-race circuit where you see every qualifier, then you would start getting fucking pro-bending problems. I, I guess the other thing is that there are elements I don't get that much time that maybe were needed for this show's uh, interior health, right? Yes. Um, like the actual, and tell me if I'm stepping over your, on your diagram here, because then I'll just sit on my hands. We're almost there. Okay. I know what you're about to bring up. We're almost fucking there. Uh, because I want to tie it into Amon, right? Um, so I think a few episodes into this, we get this episode called The Rally. I really like this episode, right? It's well plotted. It's suspenseful. It has some very good character beats. Uh, and it raises some interesting ideas. And yet in retrospect... I kind of hate it because it's emblematic of Legend of Korra's biggest issue, which is that um, it wants to have all of this discourse and historical allegory about all the political revolutions of the 19th and early 20th centuries, which is really cool, right? I'm a history buff. I love seeing shit like that. Uh, But it will go all in on these conversations in the first half of every season and then find a way to avoid drawing any conclusions about them by the time the finale rolls around. And not even a, like, you're going to have to make up your own mind kind of way. It'll find... All these little tricks, I guess, to sidestep. I used to have a little dishonest summary of this, where I would say it would just land on the status quo answer to every fucking issue. But that's not even what it does. It's like I say, it just sort of veers out before it hits a team. Yeah, I would almost admire kind of the testicular fortitude. If Korra planted her feet down in that kitty pose, things are exactly fine the way they are. (laughs) That would. I would, and I'm going to be a force for not change. Like, if this were the centrist Cerberus the Aardvark, it would be kind of fucking wild. I would call it classical conservatism right there. 
<laughs> so Amon's ideology, right? His his whole kind of vague Marxist occupy whatever. His ideology is never really occupied, bending, Shivik. Um, his ideology is never answered with an antithesis. Uh, he's just revealed to be a fraud, and his motives are then left kind of ambiguous or something. We'll we'll get we'll get to that. Nothing in his backstory that we learn about him honestly connects him to his motivations in the here and now. So you get the sense that he was just some power hungry dude with an unusual plan. And. At this point, one might be tempted to point back at Ozai, who was sort of a one-dimensional nutter. But for one thing, Ozai is really more one of those elemental evil yeah, no, kind he, of forces of point. He is, he, is, he is just evil. He is a force of nature. There's just, he, yeah. is, he is the idea of empire. Right? The other thing is that he is the figurehead of an absolute monarchy, which is way more subject to the whims and character of an individual than, say, a collectivist movement where when someone gets their jick-jacked... <laughs> Someone else just steps in and says, okay, now we're in the real revolution. Before this was the practice revolution. Henshin a go-go, baby. <laughs> I miss Beautiful Joe. I love those games. All right. They were great. Yeah, we, we just never have to end up reckoning with what he was talking about. And the conversation that ends this season is uh, has to do more with Cora's uh, character arc and the whole airbending thing, which I, I think that was a way less interesting conversation. So what I'm saying yeah. is that if you're going to put a political allegory in this and have it be as big of a deal as it is, then you have to commit to it. Otherwise, like, what is it doing there? Um, And this political allegory, his whole thing is cashed in this idea of non-bender oppression. Yeah, how which, much... With the exception of their response to the riot scene, a scene I'll give points because it actually is them doing the things they're talking about mm. in the show... I'm gonna spend so much time shitting on this. I'm going. To, I'm going to give them their freebies. Okay. I don't. I don't like it, and I'll and I'll get to why. But like, yeah. How hard are, were things for non-benders in Republic City First or off, the, the only two, world? That whole thing is weird. We spend all this time on who wants to drill down who, where, or when, and we just don't really get that day-to-day text. Like, it's it's a, it's a two-minute throwaway scene. No, it, that people just need of like, man. Yeah. No sure, indication. So I, there's just no no non-bender fucking sign by the water exactly. fountain. Like, no, no, nothing is ever really baked into the world building at all. When like it, and they they paid so much fucking attention otherwise the world building it feels like a massive fucking oversight. Like even something as like blunt and wide sweeping as like a fucking '90s X-Men cartoon just opens up with Jubilee trying to dick around a mall and getting floated for it. By a giant robot. Yeah, just no indication is ever get given that things are any harder for non-benders. Like when Tar- here's the thing, um, that scene that you're talking about when Tarlock tries to impose a curfew on non-benders, uh, and you know, like harshly breaks up, you know, a a, a what what he's calling a riot, but is you know, a just a peaceful protest. It comes out of fucking nowhere, and you can clearly hear the writers um talking through him in their desperation to retcon a justification for the equalist ideology because up to now. There was no reason for the uh, it was a lot of equals to feel the way they did. Um, also, I think they're trying to go for some kind of intersectional thing with this point I'm about to make here, but it's kind of weird and stupid. But when we're talking about the uh, social repression of non-benders in this structure, the only millionaires we get on this fucking show <laughs> are, are non-benders. All, all non-benders. Uh, I was, I was gonna... On a show where the only non-Ozai monarch we ever saw was a non-bender. <laughs> Uh, on a show on the fucking, where yeah. the Water Tribe princess was a non-bender, it just never seems like um, the the um, the social inequality that they say is there is actually there. Like up to um, 
when Tarlock, you know, breaks up that riot, right? Up to then, all we'd really seen was a couple of gangsters shaking down a market stall, um, and it seems to be implied that the owner of the stall is a non-bender, right? So he's at the mercy of, like, these three bender gangsters. It really just seems like it's more of an organized crime problem than a, you know, like, here's me, I'm a first-class citizen, here's you, non-bender, you are a second-class citizen. And uh, and a dude with a megaphone insisting that there's some sort of social inequality present that um, intrinsically had to do with men. I guess the issue is we, we see all these reactions and we just don't to, have to any... To no actual problem. Yeah, yeah, the two most prominent characters that are um, explicitly shown to be living as second-class citizens are Mako and Bolin. And guess what they can do? They can pant. And I, I totally get the idea that's kicking in the back of their mind. Yeah. It's a little more complicated than Amon says it is. Okay, fine. There are huge crowds of pissed off people. Unless they're having some kind of collective pre-Fox News seizure. Like, he, in the first episode, right? She runs into this homeless dude in the park. Um, and he would appear not to be a bender. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's just, he, he, that, it was all sounding far more like wealth disparity to me than, you know, some sort of built-in inequality between, uh, benders and non-benders. Like, and, you know, you were saying, fucking Hiroshi Sato and, like, the Cambridge Corp guy, uh, they both seem to be doing pretty well for themselves, and neither of them are benders. Like, I'm aware of, like, the concept of survivorship bias here, right? But this is a show, and you have to use your real estate wisely, and they don't. This is a show, and in its treatment of these things, it, it uses a broad stroke style, so these things kind of add up. Yeah. Not saying you can't use broad strokes, they're fine. This is a fucking mixed level action program. Your mistakes will also be loud. Speaking of loud mistakes, do you know where they eventually go with all of this, right? Because it's not very far. The show seems to treat Amon like an extremist bringing attention to a real problem. Okay, fine. Let's pretend that there exists a problem just because they told me. I don't right, believe we'll give that... him. We'll give him his Magneto but points. Just, just for the benefit of the doubt, let's say that there is such a problem. His helmet is equally cool. What is done to address this inequality in the wake of Amon's defeat? I'll tell you. They elect a non-bender president <laughs> to the United Republic, and then the issue is dropped for good. Uh, oh my God. And I have no further comment. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I, I just want an Avatar version of Stephen Colbert with his arm wrapped around Lou Ted pointing at him. <laughs> it makes my fucking soul smile. So It's my favorite thing in this show that isn't the action. It's just the moment they say they elected their first non-vendor president. president. Also, they have presidents now. So we all know that when Barack Obama was first elected on November the 4th, 2008, that day is the day that racism died in America, and we all know that to be true. And I'm left here to wonder, in season two, when Cora cocks up in the spirit world gets 9-11 into our world, mm -hmm. are there people walking around saying, thanks, Obama? <laughs> Is this the world we live in, Avatar, now? Is this where we're at? I know, she spends the fucking course of the show getting people to fucking hate her, so I have to imagine someone at one point just says, thanks, Korra. <laughs> Speaking of Amon, right, this series was going to live or die on how interested he ended up being, uh, and thus it died. Mm -hmm. uh, this is partly the fault of writing him like a J.J. Abrams-style mystery box, like you were saying. Like, he is interesting because of what you don't know about him and what you imagine about him. 
uh, by design. Uh, but once you start learning about him, the less interesting he becomes because my dad sucked is just way the fuck too pedestrian emotive for someone with such an apparently complex worldview. Uh, and it doesn't even connect is the problem. Like, I just don't end up buying that my dad was a bender and he sucked, plus I have a tendency to want things to be fair, would add up to what we get. You have to basically come up with his ideology for yourself, which to me uh, means that it doesn't exist in the first place. Like, this is a problem that they could have dodged had they, again, done the legwork and actually show us why it was so hard out there for non-benders. It is a fascinating fuck-up because... When I went through my first run of this show, mm-hmm. and even when I was like rewatching it, I was just sort of all in on this guy. I said, "Hey, well, this part is really cooking here. Good job." All right, going for something a little more earthy than the Ozai thing. I admire the variation. And then, with all the weight they'd put on the mystery of his thing, and I think his revelation episodes bother me a little more. Because I think it could have even gotten a B with not even really even having a fucking answers. I think this is a case where the information you get is worse yeah, than no, where you started. Like I was saying, the more you learn like about him, the less just, interesting he becomes. Like, if his literal fuck nuts early explanation thing is, yeah, the spirits totally fucking hate benders too, they taught me how to jick their jack, <laughs> I would have rocked with it just on the for, sort of force of attitude and just the idea that Maybe he, he'll just be like an elemental force of correction the way that Ozai was the force of being a monarchist dickhead. I think what like I would have preferred... Full on, like a Robespierre, like a flat, just out of nowhere Robespierre would have been way easier to rock with than what we got. Yes. Uh, they, they, they wanted to have it tie into, you know, Korra awakening to, you know, her past lives or whatever... So there, there had to be some sort of backstory thing, or I don't know if this is, I don't know which one kind of came first here when they were writing this. I'm trying to fucking parse it apart. I think they probably came up with his backstory um, first and then found a way to relate it to, you know, um, Korra's backstory in that, you know, Aang's story, which is mm-hmm. her backstory or whatever. That's that that is the order that I bet um it happened in. But you know, that that's just conjecture right there. But no, it would have been so much more interesting if we never learned his name. If he was just this dude from out of fucking nowhere who believed truly believed the things he did just because he believed them. I agree with you there and when it comes to that point for me, I guess the reason I say that, even though answer would have been better, is that I don't want to give this the weight of saying, I thought it was X, Y, and Z. Because that's not really the problem here. The problem here is that what you put in this space that debatably didn't even need to be filled mm-hmm. was bad enough to make the content behind it dumber. Yeah, retroactively dumber, yeah. And the content ahead of it, you are just painted into this corner... To which your solution is he wipes off his own makeup and everyone says, I no longer believe in communism. Mm. Yeah, I I want to maybe not give them points, but um, give them the benefit of the doubt and that they only had so much time to work with here. That's one thing. I guess another angle is I think they aspired to these being problems that you can't karate kick your way out of. 
I guess. It doesn't really land there because he is revealed as a fraud because he got punched out a window. But I see the backroom conversation in my mind's fucking eye. Like the idea that he is beaten because the people turneth upon him and his brother turneth upon him. Well, yeah, no, that's a problem. He's, he's never beaten because his ideals are wrong. He's beaten because his ideals not necessarily are fake, but just he's beaten because... I get what you're trying to get at. The flaws in his ideology don't sink him. Korra's inherent, Korra's inherent, uh, plucky hero too doesn't beat him. That's she the thing. gets a luck. She gets a lucky hit in. His makeup comes off. Like we're, we're never. He's his ideology is never given an answer, and then we are, we're then left to wonder if there was any ideology to begin with, and you know why we've been fucking wasting our time talking about this the entire season as they don't. They're not actually referring to a real problem near as I can tell, and it's. Ugh. And you don't even really get the B grade. The goodness of the hobbits came through <laughs> because again. Her one lucky hit after... I want to say it was, it was sort of a 10 minutes of just a song Bangarang playing behind him and her sobbing in the corner. We'll get to chorus booking later. I'm going to... Wait, no, no. I, I'm saving that. I'm putting that in the end. That, that's uh, that's going to come later. Um, I'm going to mention it once or twice. Um, Just seed it once or twice in this episode. But what we're going to... The, the big canonical conversation about it is going to come later. I think... This is a little bit apropos of nothing. I think a few of the issues that I have with the romantic subplot, um, because we were sort of talking about this, is mm. mitigated by the fact that they wrote the first book as a miniseries, right? They um they had only so much time to tell the story that in retrospect, uh, I end up kind of wishing that um that this plot had played out out over a uh, longer span of time. Like, it could have had the same result. It puts them in an awkward place later. I don't think it damages this season, so maybe... I think it damages this season. I mean, that, I mean the, that's just the, the base concept being bad. It would have been bad. It would have, it would have been the, the inane things over a longer mm-hmm. stretch of time. Like, I think the... Well, here's I don't think there's something wrong with that. I, I think that within this season, there's something wrong with these plots resolving to the point that they do. It puts them in an awkward position later... Because they are left with the, well, what now kind of thing. And several of the answers are not the natural fit one might aspire to. What I've always felt was kind of unfair about season one, or at least um, season one as I was viewing it with other you know people who were viewing it, is that I think people came down really fucking hard on Mako for perceived fuckboyism, right? Um, so the question is, did he act like a fuckboy? A little bit, Yeah. But I'm not about to blame the guy uh, because he comes off as a dude um, who just ends up holding the bag at the end. Like, they needed to get him and Asami broken the fuck up by, like, episode 10, <laughs> right? And the only way that they could think to do that was to write him like a fuckboy for an episode. His... It's, like it was, it's like it's a fucking frame job. Like, it wasn't his fault. He got hijacked. This fuckboy dub feels like the plot version of one of those Book of Job things or whatever fucking bio book just... The plot or God parts the clouds and says, bring me your son. <laughs> and everyone's wondering, like, look at what you fucking did. <laughs> and he's just like, but God told me to. <laughs> the plot demanded it. And then there's uh, characters there- get hijacked a lot. But like, that's, that's one of the more egregious examples of characters getting fucking hijacked. But it, it becomes so fucking obvious. Like, um. There in that one episode, right? It was at the end of the fucking pro bending arc. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, it's at the end of the Probabending arc, and the arc is ended by, you know, Amon attacking the arena, right? Uh, making the entire fucking police force look like goddamn morons, by the way, in the process. It is incredible how like, efficiently like, they can undermine someone's Like, the equalists don't look smart for this. The cops just look fucking stupid. Historic failure. <sighs> Imagine if... Remember the Munich Olympics huge tra- huge tragedy? Mm-hmm. That whole incident? Imagine if it happened. Because every officer in Germany just left their gun and baton at home that day. <laughs> oh, they went to fucking lunch and they left their gun on the table of the fucking <laughs> beer garden. <laughs> and that is how the clever equalist scheme scans for the police here in that moment. And like they... It seems like they're not supposed to be more. They're supposed to be really, like, cool. Like, they fucking got head fucking Cora dead to rights in the first episode when they, you know, caught her. And, you know, Lynn is... She's supposed to be real cool, right? And... But, but no, they're just they're just kind of sacrificed. A lot of that they're, going They're sacrificed the to the booking gods when, uh, when the Equalists attack. And then... Right? The Equalist attack, they promise, yeah, we're going to do fucking, you know, Equalist 9-11. Just you fucking wait. It's not when they attack, it's when they promise to attack. Or they're going to say, we're going to do Equalist 9-11. And then all of the fucking protagonists look like fucking morons out there. Where they're like, we should keep the arena open. They can't scare us. It was incredible. This is not how a fucking national security threat is answered. When they do one of those we don't negotiate with terrorist lines in an action movie. They usually don't mean we will cram a building full of targets. You won't do it. Buck, buck, buck. Buck, buck, buck. What they usually mean is we won't wire you $3 billion. And that's what makes the little line in the sand cool. Only not really that cool. It's kind of an overplayed moment in the first place. Mm. This and the fucking Mako thing are, I think, the two most egregious um, examples of character hijacking in um, book one. But they are small when put up against uh, seasons two and uh, and four, especially two. Oh, uh, the oh episode boy. we have about season two, book two, whatever, by the way, is going to be fucking two hours long because they're. I'm going to. I think it's probably one of the worst seasons of television that I've watched all the way through. I'm going to apologize in advance mm-hmm. because I am a loudmouth person with strong opinions about the second book of this show. At some point, I will say something about some protected category of person, <laughs> and I will forget to edit out in relation to book two of the Legend of Korra. So I will. We're gonna do our best. To try not to. I would like to preemptively apologize to racial groups, various disabilities, various sexualities, <laughs> philosophies, nationalities. Am I leaving anything out? Occupations. There are a lot of trapdoors that a lot of, I don't lot think of I can stop myself from running For instance, into. People with jobs. People <laughs> who do jobs. Uh, jobbers, you could call them. You could call them jobbers. Uh, I think, um, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that all of the issues present in the series going forward uh, begin in small ways in uh, season one. The foundation. And season one is, I guess, technically the second best um, season of this show. 
I would call the aspirational failures of book one superior to the sea of mediocrity that book four leaves us waddling in, yes. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. I would also I, say uh, that this just introduces all the fun, cool new things, and that is worth something. It, it got a whole lot of novelty points, certainly, yeah. Whereas, because like, this one's rival for the for uh, the second best season is four, with third just being the best one. And second just very clearly being the worst one. And uh, for second... for a couple for a couple of years though, I was so fucking butt mad about what they did in season four that I was insisting that it was the worst season. I think Fresh Pain means something. Fresh Pain means something. I think if you lay them both out on the table, um season two is uh, is almost certainly worse. Uh but I think we might be getting ahead of ourselves right now. It's very possible. It's very possible. Well, the reason that I hated season four, and I'm gonna, I'm going to try and like tie this into to something, uh, is because uh, season three made so many like fucking second term promises uh, that season <laughs> four then broke, and that is again the main thing with the Legend of Korra is that it makes these promises and that it never fucking delivers on them, and you're not, it's not immediately apparent. Uh, and what I want to talk about is the halfway point of season one, right? Or Right after the halfway point of season one, the episode, the aftermath. This oh is, yeah, this is we found the it. fault line. We found it. We found the, it. I have been wrong about the show for so many years, thinking that everything fell apart during the flashback episodes towards the end. No, the aftermath is just that's, when the alcohol poisoning sets in and the party goes downhill. Uh, yes, I think um, at the time it came out, right when we were watching this thing live, because oh boy howdy was I ever watching this series live. Uh, it just felt a little bit off. Um, like, yeah, that's uh, odd that that happened just now. There, though, there was a whole lot of that reaction, right? Uh, but in retrospect, uh, this is just where all of the problems uh, present in the season, like, that are already there, are just coming home to roost. Or they're starting to come home to roost. It's fun that this show uh, introduced a athletic thing at its root. Because this episode is when the idiot ball comes out in force and everyone is just shooting threes with the idiot ball and there are the interpersonal idiot balls that get thrown into the romantic plots mm. they're just like competency based do you think that guy with the rocket launcher down the street is a terrorist or not idiot balls that get launched into thinking characters faces there is the baffling whatever is going on with the equalist philosophy and sato yeah, I want to talk about Sato because is he is at the core of why this episode is so awful. <laughs> so, um, the twist that he is an equalist, it's about how that is handled. Uh, because it's just like a really like very clear cut case of just not great writing. Like first what they do, what they do first, right, is they tell you this guy Hiroshi Sato, right? Mm -hmm. He's an equalist, and I'll tell you why. It's because his wife was killed by a bender. Can I, can I put a pause on your point here? Sure. Because here's why I fucking hate that. And it's relatively crisp and quick. Mm -hmm. When Aman is giving his fake backstory, which you know is propagandistic bullshit as he says it, he says, uh, my family was killed by a firebender. And you are meant to say, okay, yeah, bullshit. And roll forward. <laughs> Three episodes later, we come to this dumb fuck. <laughs> and he looks screen, my family was killed by a firebender. And we're about to take it with full dramatic seriousness and way like, oh, you cockbags. You are vomiting into your own shoes right now. Proceed. 
there might be something to be said with uh, for context, but yeah, that's a good point that you make. Um, so what they do is that they tell you, yeah, he's Nucleus, this is why, right? And then um, this is presented to him. Aha, gotcha. And then he's like, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and you, the viewer, is supposed to be like, then who could it be? And then mere minutes later, Minutes later, it all turns out to be fucking true. Now, the way you want to write a twist like this is that maybe they were correct in their initial assumption, right? That, yeah, this guy is Nicholas, right? And it's, um, what they were wrong about was the motive, right? And that is what ends up throwing them off or something like that, right? Like, um, like, uh, you could do, for, for example, like, he is an equalist, uh, as suspected, but instead of resentment over his wife's murder, like, I don't know, he grew up hearing awful stories about the war from his parents, um, and they were convinced it was all the fault of Benders, and this becomes part of his ideology growing this up. This is how he makes something character-driven instead well, of random event-driven. Well, this is just an example, and I'm not trying to fanbook a better season, uh, There Be Dragons, um... But you see what I'm saying is that when they uh, they give you his affiliation, his motives, and then just throw you off the trail for a second before confirming, yes, everything we just told you at the beginning of this episode was true, uh, it's not a plot twist so much as this is a spoiler. It's like <laughs> someone telling you that they're going to throw you a surprise party. Yeah. Yeah. It. And everyone looks like an idiot in this episode, too, um, for just being led around by the nose by the fucking, you know, twist and turn spoiler is good because i didn't have a one word summary for a broken mystery plot the spoiler yeah a mystery plot to solve a mystery you know the answer to for 20 minutes it, they could even have done a thing where they know this about him but that's not good enough because they have to prove it or something like that and that becomes the uh that becomes the challenge but they don't do that they just no. they're just thrown off the they're just thrown off the trail for three minutes. Now, the reason that this matters is because of what it does to the emotional gears of the episode. Like, fuck the whatever cinema sins aspect of it, but the thing is the dramatic pin of the episodes becomes Korra believes this, Mako sides with his girlfriend by default, yeah. Asami is in the corner of the room watching the black avatar have sex with her, her wife, whatever. And <laughs> that that's like the emotional... <laughs> sake of the episode so then the second layer is also fucked and the way that they execute these moments of you know the sort of dissension of trust was just not working on its own and it's built on a rickety foundation so i'm even more annoyed and then my blood pressure is high enough that by the time the steampunk robots come in i think i would think they were cooler if they came in before or after this episode i want to talk about the steampunk robots i've got some fucking I've got some fucking notes about those. Okay. Okay. Um, it's a little bit of a nitpick. Uh, and I'm trying not to nitpick um in this That's episode. Okay. We've hit a lot of the big picture stuff though, so I think we can. So, this, so this this is this is gripes. just a, like shit I didn't like, right? Uh, the presence of mechs in this show always felt uh very fan servicey to me, and I was uh, never more than lukewarm on them. Um like I have this little buzzing noise that goes off my head whenever I sense a show is trying to bribe me uh, with superficial elements that I'm meant to like so that I don't pay as much attention to um to its shortcomings. It's uh, it's why I'm extremely wary of pantsu shots in anime and why I'm equally suspicious of stuff that's meant to be totally sick, bro. 
Don't you like your robots? Don't you like your electric power fists? Shit I like that. The uh, the climax of the fourth season was the culmination of all of this, by the way. I have an alarm that blurs for that. At the risk of getting ahead of myself. It makes me sound like a way worse person. Mm-hmm. Because mine is a little simpler. It's just... Am I being treated like a contemporary Doctor Who fan? <laughs> <laughs> like, are they thinking, okay, they bring up the sonic screwdriver and they're going to fucking cream themselves? <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's, you have sort of the same problem as I do. It's just sort of like a different, coming from a different place, maybe. Yeah, um, it's, where I feel like they're treating me like an idiot. I feel like the show is treating me like an idiot by being like, he loves robots. He'll eat this shit up. Also, something they never quite figure out, and this goes back to, it is ultimately an, an action show, and all punches matter. But when you bring in these robots... And you haven't necessarily mastered the art of making their movements or manner of movements or just manner of fighting quite as engaging to watch. You're just losing points that there there could be some perfectly good karate in this scene. Is all I'm they're, they're doing the same grappling hooks that the regular Eagles do. Like, do you know how well trained we are as audience members? <laughs> if her father had taken out a pair of nunchucks, you would not have heard a goddamn complaint about it. In that would have that would have been the sickest shit. <laughs> You, you, you never understood Asami. <laughs> then you just game of death for six minutes. I don't even fucking care. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to arrive at Korra right about now. Uh, just Korra as a character. Because I think the character, Korra as a character, um, exits the first season relatively still intact. Uh, and unassassinated. Yeah. Trust me, that assassination is coming. She's not long <laughs> for this world. Uh, but there are issues present, as I've been saying, in this first season that get worse in subsequent seasons. Um, this is kind of the crux of like the biggest problem that you have with this show, and it's a big problem that I have with the show, too, which is um, she seems to have way more trouble in a fight at times than she perhaps should. Uh, and I'm no, putting no, it very it. lightly. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. I'm not even getting into it here. Uh, and uh, yeah, that it's just true. I'm just gonna say that is true. That is true. Now I'm I'm foreshadowing. You know what what you're gonna have in the fourth episode of uh, this little series here. Like you can forgive a few of the big L's that she takes in the season because of the circumstances surrounding them. Usually it's because she's caught off guard by some heretofore unknown element. Like oh shit, Equalist can she block? Oh shit, Tarlux a bloodbender, etc. Like those losses. The losses stop just short of feeling like bullshit. At worst, she just feels like she's really fucking easy to like surprise or take advantage of or whatever. Mm-hmm. She just—it feels like like she she could maybe be a little bit um smarter, right? But usually, it's it's not to the degree of you know you know Randy Orton is distracted by the Singh brothers again. Oh no, here comes Jinder Mahal it behind was, him. It was. How many months was Again, that? How many months was that? The same fucking match, I think, at five different pay-per-views. Um, I was Incredible. watching a lot of um wrestling in 2017. Not a great year for Raw. Gotta tell you. Not a great year for Raw. A very It might have been SmackDown. A very book two of Korra year for Raw. I think it was SmackDown. I think the WWE Championship was on SmackDown at that point. Yeah. Um <laughs> No winning answer. Anyway, uh the show goes on though. And she keeps taking these fucking mountingly embarrassing L's to people uh, she should have dead to rights before, um, because the plot just needs to move forward. It's like a stroke. It just keeps happening. And her credibility suffers for it. She's like, 
it's it's bad booking is what it is. Uh, and by book four, even after she gets her groove back, she feels like a fucking parody of the Avatar concept. Like, what if someone could bend like all a- the elements, but they were really bad at all four of them? It really gets kind of entertaining to me. <laughs> Not in a- and when I say entertaining, what I really am... Like the mean kind of way? No, what I really am is just doing that thing where I'm saying, ha ha, you can't hurt me because I'm actually laughing. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually funny to me that you insulted me like that. I am above the fray of this flame war. It is entertaining in that sense. I've got one final point that I want to make just, and this is like kind of a broad thing, right? All right, all right. Bring in your, bring in your hose, bring in your bullets. So the driving question of the legend of Korra, all four seasons ask the same question and, you know, yeah, give yeah. you different scenarios for each, uh, give you different scenarios each time. The big it's, spiritual question mark then? What's, does the world still need the avatar? That is the big question. Um, <laughs> that's a big question present that hangs over every single conflict in this show. And it's a good question. It's like a good idea for a big narrative through line. But yep. this ties back to what I was talking about earlier is that we never get a satisfying answer. Like we get all of these arc villains and I guess the idea is um, there's always going to be uh, people like this. The avatars need to stop them. But a that's facile um, given how complex the issues they uh, play at wanting to talk about are. And B, we're never really shown why it needs to be the Avatar specifically. It says nothing meaningful when Amon is defeated by a bender, and even less meaningful when he himself is a bender. I'm going to give them a little more short-term credit and a lot less long-term credit okay. on this point. All right, so what's this rope? To me, I think that in each phase of the show, they lay out a clear answer, which is yes, yes, no, yes. <laughs> To me as well, the logic behind and moments behind these answers suck so fucking bad (laughs) (laughs) that I do not buy their answer to this question. And the little things that they threw in to try to throw in doubt to each season's answer until they throw it in makes it just seem like they're fucking wrong. And I'm not even saying there's an inherently right or wrong answer this question because the avatar is a made-up thing that made they made up Mm -hmm. but everything that they put inside the gumbo is making it taste like toothpaste because they dumped a carton of toothpaste into their fucking gumbo all right so illustrate your point um insofar as season one all right so season one the basic idea mm-hmm. is that the Avatar is supposed to bring balance to everyone, and that includes people outside of this elemental, like, square. Yeah. And these people start doing something for themselves, but they've gone too far. <laughs> and then she beats up one guy who was a bender. A bender the entire and, time. Oh, oh my god, the fucking moral equation... That's what I it's, said. It's, it's like, Amon is a bender, and he's defeated by a bender, and none of what the actual point had to do with, uh-huh, so, makes my so fucking were, head hurt. On a direct, textual, clear level, mm-hmm. the world needs the Avatar. If you are watching this, your human instinct, because they told you the story wrong, is just the words, my ass. <laughs> also, a problem is that they keep throwing the Avatar's... Not so much into second season because they 
come to an entirely different shitty route to resolution. Oh man! But the but the avatar is like final resolution of these things in one, three, and four. Mm-hmm. Are all things that like Lin Bei Fong could have done if she got a lucky shot in? <laughs> like, there's nothing that Korra achieves in season one that Bolin couldn't do on his best day. Perhaps. I'm. Which is, in, in, which, in an effort to be fair, I'm trying to figure out if you can apply this to, um, if you could apply that sort of reasoning to um, the original series. Uh, no, because they have way more clarity on the spiritual issue in the original series. Okay, sure. And how much of this is because of like spiritual drift within the, within these empires. Like, Aang resolves like the ultimate final bullet point problems, like. I'll take two big points. Fighting Ozai or just that whole water tribe siege bullshit. Okay, sure. By essentially coming to terms with these spiritual issues, like helping, you know, help resurrect X-Fair, Communist Moon, whatever. He's a he's a kaiju now. Way better execution than the second thing. Final book of um part one. The elevation of this internal murder question mm-hmm. to this external spiritual problem. He gets his fight solution through this whole lion turtle bullshit whatever thing. Mm-hmm. That is very different than giving Amon a stunner and his makeup comes off. Punching Kavira in the tit and then she gives up. <laughs> or an admittedly kind of sweet fight against Zaheer, but in that season they are bending toward the avatar thing is obsolete because they want to set up tension for the last one the last one yeah so in each of those scenarios basically the root of the avatar thing which i guess maybe they backed off from this because they failed so spectacularly in season two is that they are the you are the bridge between the spiritual and physical worlds Mm -hmm. that's just another axis of balance and that is just not why things ultimately happen in it's, one it's, and it's, they, they never express that yeah. um in and a, it is in expressed in two but there, there are uh external problems two, two has other problems <laughs> two has other the problem i guess i don't know maybe maybe this is a credit where it's due sort of thing with two and that like yeah i guess they do answer does the world need the avatar and why <laughs> oh man but what the avatar actually is you're not gonna like that yeah yeah that that is a relatively clean but we'll uh, we'll talk about that later there's one uh last point that i want to raise and it's a positive one mm-hmm. i'm gonna kind of compliment sandwich uh the, the, this one because i came in with you know the positive i'm gonna end with some positive too i am aware that i'm putting a children's show under a microscope right now like i'm aware that this series is aimed at an audience that was half my age when the fucking thing was airing 10 years ago Though it never delivers on its promises, I do think that The Legend of Korra does a good job of interviewing the viewers in its target target demographic, you know, kids, to the idea of um of ideology. Like, when I was nine, all I knew about Marxism and the socialist revolutions of the 19th and early 20th centuries was that Russia used to have a different name. Mm. Like, that was it. And now here I am, and there are a few things as important to my own ideology uh, than the socialist revolutions of the 19th and early 20th centuries and the writings of certain intellectuals uh, present at that time. Um, I mostly had to learn all about myself. So that Cora at least introduces young viewers to these ideas, gets them ready to think about how complicated the world and its history are, there's something to be said for that. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of neat. 
that is the credit that I'm going to give the show kind of on the whole. That is the net positive. I will put that junior mint on its tongue with the reservation that I defy you to take Udalok's ideology past the words Catholic straw man. Yeah, I do, again, season two is unforgivably awful. Like, <laughs> like I think I think any sort of praise that I give this series is going to have to come with a little asterisk, you know, and at the bottom of the page it says not season two. Fucking wild. Anyway, this has been part one of our long promised quartet of uh Korra backdrop episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed having you. Um, I hope you have an excellent week, unless you are dismayed at the election results, in which case you can um, suck the front the back. Not the side, not the front, just the back. <laughs> All right, yeah, it's uh, and it, this has been Weeaboo Hell. It it's has been Weeaboo, Weeaboo Hell. I am Sam Legault. And I am Denar Dale. You can go to WeeabooHell.com. Weeaboo Hell has a slightly more frequently used Instagram, slightly more, getting more active Twitter. You can dig those up. You can go to, um, I already said WeeabooHell.com, didn't I? All right. Peace. Fuck 12. Fuck 12.